Oftentimes we come to practice and it's all about our sitting practice, our vipassana practice and how to handle that and what is awareness all about. And I think it's good for us to really understand all of the Buddha's practices that he offered over his lifetime so that we could actually integrate all of them into our lives. We also are helped by understanding their importance because it gives us a better chance to really practice with devotion and sincerity, not just because it's the teachings of the Buddha are somebody special, teachings of somebody special, but because we know that this will bring us benefit in our lives. It'll bring us that inner peace and happiness that in our own unique ways we're all aspiring for. It'll also bring us the understanding of how to navigate the difficult times, the storms and tsunamis of our lives so that we can handle them with evenness of mind, with a sense of um, we still have a purpose in our lives to deepen our understanding and to live from that depth. We learn that we can transform obstacles into opportunities for awakening rather than just giving in to them or giving up on ourselves that the, the work that we do to overcome obstacles, to see them more clearly, to work with them in a way that causes less harm to the world and less harm to ourselves, these are ways that we awaken our own hearts and we bring forth the wisdom that we need to actually free ourselves from greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddhist teachings were presented to me at first by uh, my first teacher, Anagarika Munindra. It was presented to me as the three pillars of the Dharma, and that's how I'd like to present it to you. Because it included integrating all these three pillars in my life, and not just to focus on one, say meditation, but to see all of them as a coherent whole. And these three uh, pillars are dana, uh, the practice of generosity, which really helps us in letting go, mostly letting go of greed. And the practice of sila, which I'm going to speak about this evening, it's a practice of refraining from harming, harming so that we cultivate an inner sense of harmony in ourselves and in connection with the world. <coughs> very important. And the third pillar is called bhavana. Bhavana means development. It's developing that mind and heart in the areas of concentration or stability of mind and also in wisdom, the liberating factor of the Buddhist teachings. So it's by the, this sum, the integration, the completion of these practices, not leaving any one of them out, that we really deliver the mind and heart to the sure heart's release. And this is what, uh, the, what the Buddha's promise was. So I'd like to read that to you. Um, this is from the simile of the heartwood in the Majjhima Nikaya. So this is a Buddha speaking to some of the uh, ones who were practicing with him. So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So all these three, the three include virtuous conduct, concentration, and wisdom, which is translated here as knowledge and vision. All these three as an integrated whole lead to the sure heart's release. It's not any single one of them only, is what the Buddha is saying. 
So tonight I'd like to speak about sila. It's a kind of conduct that composes and harmonizes the mind and the heart. And I like to call this sila inner beauty. So lately I've been reflecting a lot on that inner beauty because um, as we grow older and I think we're, you know, a lot of us are in that age where we're seeing how it's different, you know, the, the skin has a different texture, there's different energy uh, in, the, in the body, we can't sometimes keep up. I can't hold a lot of concepts at the, at the same time these days. Um, and there's a sense of this youthful glow and vibrancy outwardly disappearing. Uh, I, I just turned 70, so it's like, whoa, I, I walk around and say, I'm 70 now, I shouldn't be doing this anymore, <laughs> like traveling so much. Um, so I become more and more aware of the importance to me of inner beauty rather than outer beauty. It's a glow and strength that comes with developing the paramis and developing a sense of a, a deep sense of non-harming, non-harming others and non-harming, not harming my own karmic stream by transgressing the the uh, precepts. So inner beauty means the qualities of mind and heart, compassion and wisdom, that lead to a sense of deep calm within us. And that sense of harmony within us leads to a sense of deep happiness, like a contentedness that <coughs> we're doing the best we can in our lives. And that when we're sitting in meditation, when we look back on our lives and we know in our recent life, recent past, we know that <clears throat> there was no harming through our speech and behavior, or maybe there was a, a weakening uh, of it through our speech and behavior, and we feel really content when we sit, and we don't have a lot of things ruffling our minds. So this inner harmony that comes from non-harming really gives us that ability to have wise attention on everything that we do. It's this inner strength um, and that comes from our intentions, our resolve, and the conscious energy that we put to acting and speaking in the world so that we don't harm in any way, either outwardly or harm our own karmic stream, which is really important as we grow older in the Dharma, no matter what our ages, you know, chronologically, a uh, lot of people come to the Dharma and they're what we call old souls already. And there's a sense of this being really careful so that there's this inner harmony. So in Pali, that word sila means harmonious living through our speech and behavior, those two things in particular. It's also uh, translated as virtuous conduct through speech and behavior. Meditation has to do with purifying the mind, and sila has to do with purifying speech and action, speech and behavior. So that's a difference, but we need both of them together to be integrated. One of the characteristics of sila is harmonizing. Harmonizing, that's in the... Um, Abhidhamma, this is what uh, it, it talks about, you know, they always have the proximate cause, the characteristics. Uh, so harmonizing is the characteristic of sila. It's living in harmony with one's highest inner values. That's why at the beginning yesterday I talked about, do we know, do you know what your highest inner value is? Is that something that you have time in your life, space in your life to contemplate upon? What is valuable to you at this time in your life? 
of your inner value, not outer conditions that have to be just so, but what's happening within you that you value. And that we live in harmony also with the highest values of the community we live in, so that we're not harming others through our speech and behavior, through what we do to cause disharmony in our community. So both of these, uh, living in harmony with one's highest inner values and living in harmony with the highest values of the community we live in, leads to a deep sense of well-being. So we can imagine that easily and maybe even know of those experiences in our personal life where maybe we've had a good day or a good week or a good few months where we really feel good about ourselves, our speech and our behavior. We've really paid attention to the precepts. Precepts are are also awareness practices. They're not, um, you know, just, they're not commandments, they're trainings where we are mindfully aware of how we're, what we're going to say, how we're going to act. We refrain from acting from a place of um, greed, hatred, or delusion. And when there is generosity, love, and wisdom, then we act or we speak. So we become very, very refined, in a refined way, aware. <coughs> so it's said that this kind of conduct composes the mind composes the mind and the heart, and it makes it easily quiet, which has far-reaching consequences when the mind is easily quiet. Um, I'm remembering a time when, before I came to retreat, a retreat, this was a long time ago, um, (laughs) Sharon Salzberg, my friend, always says, Remember that when you give an exam- a not a very good example of yourself, say it was a long time ago. <laughs> so, but it really was, I'm not lying. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so a long time ago, <laughs> I came to a retreat and I had a horrible um, fight with my daughter. And I came to the retreat and my, my mind was all ruffled. And it spent a long time in that retreat just thinking about that, like what she said, what I said, what I was going to say the next time, what I should have said, all of those things, you know, how we can get wound up in that. So it wasn't good. And I realized the benefit of having this training to be careful, to be mindful, to be aware of what's motivating What's fueling speech? Is it something, is it attachment to my point of view? Is it aversion to what the other person is saying or doing or to themselves per se? Uh, Or is it coming from love and a sense of generosity and a sense of kindness? So when we pay attention to our minds, our relationship, the relationship in our minds, to what we're going to say, what we're going to do. This is very important. That's why one of our teachers, Utejaniya, always brings us back to what's going on in your mind in relationship to what you're facing out there. Usually we're so caught in what's happening out there that we don't do this. We don't turn and watch the mind. And so the huge training in our practice is reminding ourselves to see what, where we're coming from in our own hearts and minds, not just on the sitting cushion, but in our daily lives. So this kind of conduct composes the mind and makes it easily quiet. A quiet mind, a still mind, has many possibilities. But when it's distracted and uh, sort of enveloped in greed, hatred, and delusion, and kind of making a sense of self that's so important and special, it gets really lost and can't see things as they really are. So sila, or virtue, is really important in the three trainings that lead to liberation. 
this is what the Buddha said uh, in one of his talks to um, those who were practicing with him from the Samyutta Nikaya. A monk approached the Buddha and said, let the blessed teacher um, teach me the Dhamma in brief. And so the Buddha replied, well then, Bhikkhu, cultivate the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then establish the four foundations of mindfulness. What the Buddha is saying is we practice sila first and then we start practicing meditation. But it was interesting when the Dharma came to the West, there was a lot of interest in meditation. So that's where we started out, you know, learning how to meditate. And now, it's more in the last 20 years, we've been really bringing out this understanding of sila, how that is utterly important in the Buddhist teaching too. We can't over, override that. Usually, when the Buddha was invited to offer teachings to a community, he would begin with the teaching of generosity, the cause and effect relationship of the acts of giving, because it really helps to let go of greed, basically. And then he spoke about sila, which is virtuous conduct. And um, in our times today, in our formal teachings, we're always encouraged as teachers to give more airtime to sila and, and not just to talk about meditation. And so we know that there are times for all of us in our lives when we look at our lives and we look at ourselves and our relationship to the world and we see we've got to clean up our act in particular areas. And that's why it's really wonderful to chant the, the precepts every day because it kind of reminds us, you know, like, oh, I'd better pay attention to this one in particular, you know, about that particular precept. Uh, and so we're reminded every day and we make a vow, you know, we'll do the best we can to pay attention to these areas. And if we transgress, we try again. It's a training. Nobody's going to punish us because we don't follow it. Um, well, in, in communities there might be some kind of punishment. You know, I'll talk about that. Sometimes people in, in, the, in the community of the monks and the nuns, sometimes when you transgress, there is this really awful way that, um, well, it's hurtful. Where the, where the, if you don't confess what you've done in a way that has hurt others, then people just shun you. You know, the monks just want to stay away from you until you can say, this is what I did to harm another person or to harm another uh, person of my community. And then when you say that, then all is kind of, there's reestablishment of reconciliation in the community. So when we chant these precepts every day, it's a way of reminding ourselves really that we'll do the best we can to train ourselves in this, refraining from harm through our speech and behavior. So when we practice in these areas, um, we become more aware of where are we coming from before we act, before we speak, and we get really careful about it. It's said that the proximate causes for this careful attention called sila to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. The proximate causes for uh, this virtuous conduct in our speech and behavior to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. And these are not outer guardians like some heavenly angels or devas or spirit guides, their inner guardians. Uh, in the ancient language of Pali, they're known as 
Hiri and Otapa. And some of you are interested in um, these Pali words, so I'll just uh, spell them. Hiri is H-I-R-I, and Otapa is O-T-T-A-P-P-A. These are the two guardians of the world. Many fine translators like to use these terms in Pali and not to use their translations in English because in their translations in English they have a very limited, uh, we can have a very limited understanding of them and they're much more than what they're translated into English. So Hiri is translated as moral shame. So when we hear that in English, it's, it, it's moral shame is not a very nice grouping of words. It's associated with self-aversion, but not in the Buddhist teaching. Hiri means something almost the opposite of that. Hiri has a personal sense of integrity, of conscience, and uh, it's an internal inner sense that what we say, or what we might say, or what we do in our actions, don't feel right. It's a healthy form of sensitivity. You all know that in some ways. When you're about to say something, uh, or do something, and you say, oh, this is going to be hurtful to myself. And this first um, uh, guardian of the world, Hiri, has a personal sense of conscience with it. It's an intuitive sense that if I do or say this, in, in the Dharma what it means is that it's going to hurt my karmic stream, be harmful for my karmic stream, because it's inculcating either more greed, hatred, or delusion if I do this or say this. And so we, we're very, very careful. We shrink away from that experience. It said that um, there's an intuitive sense that this will go into the karmic stream of, and then will rise up again to cause suffering and for myself and possibly for others. So it's very important that we pay attention to this. It is about having respect for oneself. It boils down to that, respecting one's own highest values. And if you believe in karma, it's really protecting your own karma. It's preserving an honorable standard that when we refrain from acting or speaking in a certain way, we can feel comfortable in ourselves. So I'm, I'm sure that you have in your own ways known what you might have said or done and then you didn't do it and after that you felt a sense of relief right have you felt that like that was good <clears throat> and i can um you have a sense that i can do this again so th these here in otapa have to do with renunciation of not acting out something that we might act out it's respect for one's own integrity, one's own dignity. It's a deep care for long-term well-being because of the sense of karma that we think about. It's respect for one's welfare. So <clears throat> there are times when um, I might have wanted to say something or do something, and there's an inner sense that reminds me, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing to say or to do. And sometimes I don't get out the Dharma duct tape fast enough. <laughs> and it, it just flies out of my mouth, you know, in, in a way that is harmful. And so there's a lot of ramifications, inner ramifications that come from that. Maybe nobody outside of me, around me, is that harm that it hurts them. But inside of me, there are many moments that I have, I call them cringing moments. And sometimes these cringing moments last a long time. So in the Dharma, it's um, 
What it feels like is, ex is explained, described in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. It's, uh, they give a simile there. It's like seeing a hot iron rod smeared. It's like seeing an iron rod and on one side it's very hot and on the other side it's smeared with excrement. And here he is like you're about to grab the side that's smeared with excrement and it's like, uh-uh, not going there because this is not going to be good for me because we'll be smeared with that excrement ourselves, you know, in our hands. It's a feeling of impending disgust. You know, when we feel kind of disgusted with that we could even think of that. What to, what to say or what to do in that way. <clears throat> and this is a good thing, um, that when we, when we have these kinds of thoughts, it's kind of waking us up, that uh, be careful, be careful here. One time I was uh, practicing in Burma, and I, I was there after a difficult uh, argument and a difficult time with a good one of my good girlfriends and we'd been going through this over and over again right before I went to a particular subject matter right before I went into retreat and uh, out of an unchecked habit in retreat I kept thinking about this over and over again I kept thinking about the times when yeah touche I got her back by this statement you know I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't think like that all the time. And it was a long time ago, too. <laughs> so, years ago. Uh, and so the mind just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. It's usually in the walking practice. And I was doing things like blaming and thinking out ways that, you know, I would handle it the next time with her. Then I went to report it to the teacher and uh, that it would come up over and over again, and that the mind would have a twinge of disgust. That's what I really felt for it. I could feel it like a train coming towards me, you know, and I'd be disgusted that here it comes again, you know. And, but then I would get on the train, you know, and just hop on it and do what I always did uh, out of habit, but then the twinge would be a deeper and deeper warning, and more and more like I could see it coming from afar, and it would like toot its train horn really loud, and I would say, mm-mm, not going there again. I would feel that disgust and say, nope, I'm not getting on that train. It was like this energy that I wanted to shrink away, to get off the platform and not be waiting for that train to come and hop on it and to shrink away from that experience of doing that again and again and again. So this was the inner guardian of Hiri that was guarding me from that kind of those thoughts which might turn into behavior, acting out behavior through my speech, through actions, that would cause harm to me. And I already saw how much harm it was by thinking about it over and over again. It was suffering to keep thinking about it. So this constant thinking was only engendering more ill will, more delusion, more of a sense of me, mine, and who I am, and it wasn't respecting myself. So I finally got to deeply know that. So when I went to the teacher, I said, I have this sense of disgust for what's happening but it seems like aversion. It doesn't, it isn't aversion. It's like, stay away. And he, then he said, oh, this is Hiri. This is that inner guardian. It's guarding you from putting more of this into your karmic stream. So that's Hiri, one of the inner guardians of the world. And it's a cause for inner beauty, a cause for the development of something that can really um, be powerfully guarding us in, at future times for, in times like this. It said that the proximate cause of Hiri, which is moral shame, 
the proximate cause is self-respect. So when you're, when you're having these experiences of things going through your mind over and over again, when you want to move away from them, it's not aversion. It's like an inner guardian of self-respect. So this is from our grandfather teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, saying, Hiri, or shame, moral shame, is a feeling of disgust towards the kilesas, towards the hindrances. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, so to speak, you feel a kind of abhorrence or shame. It's a shrinking away from the hindrances. And this attitude is wholesome and it's called Hiri, one of the inner beauties. So the other one is Otapa. It's called, uh, translated into moral dread or moral fear. This dread or fear is not a defilement. It's a sense that something could go wrong and be careful here, be careful here. It's a sense of social conscience, kind of a a sense of really being careful about your relationship with others in the world. Whereas Hiri is a sense of personal conscience. So this conscience is a healthy form of fear of doing something that's blamable, of doing something that others in your community might feel um, to kind of shun you about, or to stay away from you, or fear you. That, uh, our, that it's a healthy form of fear that our speech or behavior could be harmful to others. So we try to catch it before it comes out of our mouths or our behavior or our actions. It's a wise sense of knowing and respecting the communal standards that we live within. We want that harmony because we know in the end, being in harmony with the community protects our own survival. And so we, we value that respect that we have for others and others have for ourselves, for us. So it's consideration, respect for others, that the community is as fragile as one person's unconscious, unmindful speech or behavior. You know that we can say something in the community that can harm a huge community. And um, it just takes one little act, one person, one act, where it can make the community ripple with fear. There's a beautiful story that uh, one of my friends told to me about a rabbi. And um, there was a person in the community saying things against the rabbi kind of defaming the rabbi. And the person came to the rabbi and said, "Um, I know I've said things to harm you and to harm your connection with the community. So I want to ask for forgiveness and also to see what I can do to um, correct that harm. So the rabbi said, surely you're, you're forgiven. I forgive you, absolve you. Of, of that, um, if you, you've come to me asking for forgiveness. And the person said, what could I do? And the rabbi said, I want you to take this feather pillow into the community and tear the pillow apart and let all the feathers fly out into the community. And the person said, okay. So he did that and he came back to the rabbi and said, I did that. And he said, oh, it's not finished yet. I want you to go out and collect all those feathers. And the understanding that came to that person was really deep. You know, eventually the rabbi said, that's okay. But the person learned a lesson that our speech, our behavior can ripple out and cause disharmony in a community. So it's really important that we keep 
our speech and behavior clean and understand impact. So what we might fear in that is uh, when it was called moral fear, is that members of the community would lose their trust in us, would lose their respect for us. And we want that. We want the respect of those we love in our community, especially those we value, those we respect. So one of my friends, also a long time ago, I'm talking about this one friend of mine, her experience. She um, was having trouble in her relationship and so she went to a, a retreat and she had a, a VR, a Vipassana romance. You know, it was silent, then nothing happened. And she, she, she kind of confessed that to me and um, I become like a mother confessor sometimes. And so I said, oh, so what became of that? You know, what, what more? Tell me more about it. And she said, well, I, I had this kind of fear that if Seda Upandita knew about it, he wouldn't like me. He wouldn't respect me anymore. That was our teacher, you know, at the time. And so that, I, I thought, oh, that's Otapa. You know, this is a healthy, beautiful quality of the mind that says, if I, if I carry this out, which I, I know her, she would never do, but she just said, you know, she had this attraction to somebody at the retreat. And um, uh, she said, but I wouldn't go through with it because of what Sayadawji would think of me. And so what she was really having a fear about is that somebody that she respected would disrespect her, would kind of find her. He wouldn't do that. He'd be very forgiving, of course. But this is how it goes in, in our hearts. We want people that we love and respect to also respect us. <clears throat> so this is a healthy fear. Moral fear is a healthy fear. It, the proximate cause for moral fear to arise is respect for others. So uh, whereas hiri is respect for ourselves, and that's a proximate cause of hiri, the proximate cause for otapa is respect for others. So <clears throat> there's this iron rod I talked about a bit ago. And on one side of the iron rod is a burning, um, is kind of like burning metal. And when we see that, and we're about to grab it, and we see that, we realize that we pull ourselves away from it. Because we know this is harmful also to ourselves. Uh, and it's, it's not a good thing. So we dread the consequences of being shunned. Uh, or having societal punishment also. So with Manindra, sometimes um, I would see something in, on his face. He would have these certain facial expressions that, I don't know, from my point of view, would be like he was upset or disgusted with something. He would have a certain way of putting his lips in his eyes. Of course, that's not fair for me to, you know, kind of lay on a something like that if I don't really know, and I wouldn't. But sometimes I would say, Manindraji, you look annoyed. It looks like you're upset. And one of the things he would say is, uh, and this has to do with another Dhamma lesson, he says, Yes, upsetness is there, but upsetness is not me. <laughs> he wasn't doing a spiritual bypass, by the way. It, he could really see that, you know, these things would come and go. Um, but at that time, he said to me, uh, yes, he said, sometimes these things come and there's a signal, there's an inner signal not to act on them because he can feel that upsetness, he could feel that annoyance come. But he would tell me there's an inner signal that warns us to be careful, to be careful. So when I have that inner signal of hiri or tapa, it's a, a, a kind of like a, some words that say, be careful here, 
you might say or do something you'll regret. So Hiri and Otapa is supported by awareness. Um, when we're mindfully attentive to our inner world of habit patterns and uh, ways that we respond to things habitually, that awareness gets activated and we refrain from acting out those habit patterns that cause harm to our own karmic stream or to others. Very important. I'll have to look up the author of this, um, but it's a really interesting quote that is true for me and maybe for you all too. You can do or say something in an instant that can give you a heartache for a lifetime. And I know this to be true. Because even though our intentions are good, and if we don't um, anticipate the impact, we get in trouble. So intentions, we know our intentions, that's good, but we also have to anticipate impact. Those two need to really come together in order for us to really do our practice. There have been times in all of our lives when Hiri Otapa saves us, it guards us from further trouble. And you can reflect on that in your own lives when that has happened, when you were about to act or say something and um, you didn't do it and it really saved you. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, gave me an example um, again, long ago, <laughs> this happened, where she felt hurt and betrayed by someone very close to her, and she wanted to lash out with her hurtful words and blaming uh, back. But she decided to wait until her mind was more peaceful and calm, and she could rely upon her inner wisdom to respond. So she did that. She waited for a while, and when she felt more certain that she could respond in a wisdom and compassion, then she did respond. So she dropped a lot of wholesome seeds into her karmic stream then. Because for one thing, she refrained from acting something out, which is very positive, it's very wholesome. And then what she did act out was something beautiful, something with, in connection with compassion, in connection <coughs> with wise speech. And that, those two things brought a lot of dignity, self-reflection to her own heart, it caused a kind of more of a connection with the person she was needing to uh, interact with. So those things together, all together, were very positive things for her mind stream, for her karmic stream. So she freed herself from remorse, from regret, and um, when she sat and uh, when she did further long sittings, long uh, retreats, it didn't bother her because she knew that she handled it well. So it's said um, from the Buddha's teachings, from the Buddha himself, virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim and non-remorse as its benefit. So sila is a beautiful form of renunci renunciation, which is one of the paramis, the beautiful qualities of mind that help us to cross the flood, they say, the Buddha says. The flood is that sea of samsara, that sea of suffering. And what we relinquish in renunciation, it's not about renu renouncing that we want this or we want that or you know, let's give up this for Lent or something. <laughs> it's re what it's relinquishing is greed, hatred, and delusion. So when we can refrain from acting that out through our speech and behavior, on the other side of that is a cultivation of compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. So we gain a lot in our karmic stream by doing that, gain a lot of wholesome qualities. We're letting go there with renunciation by refraining from acting out. 
we're gaining a sense of the power of letting go of greed and hatred, moment to moment. And then we develop generosity and goodwill. Those are beautiful qualities of mind also. And all of those make fertile soil for deep wisdom to grow. So in our moment-to-moment vipassana or meditation practice, these qualities can grow more easily in the fertile soil of sila, which produces all those beautiful qualities, generosity, goodwill, renunciation, compassion, um, and wisdom. So there's a possibility to experience a very deep strength of goodness within ourselves. Really important for our sitting practice. It's if, we come to, if we come to retreats over and over again and we're still acting out greed, hatred, and delusion in our lives, we don't know, we can't see it in ourselves in our daily lives. And we just kind of let it fly out our mouth or let the behaviors go that cause more and more greed, hatred, and delusion, then we're not really bringing our practice of sila, another mindfulness awareness practice, into our lives with the kind of devotion that we do our retreats. So retreating, just retreating, is really not good enough. We really have to do um, the whole thing. So when we have this sense of goodness in ourselves, it's, uh, there are moments when we have this inviolable protection, when we feel really protected by our power, the inner power of the, these beautiful qualities of mind. A great protection for us to keep going in our practice. So it says the benefit of virtue Um, As I mentioned one of them already, virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim and has non-remorse as its benefit. This helps us in our sitting practice immensely. It's also said that one who is virtuous comes into the large fortune of liberation. That's the end result. One's fair name is spread. Those who have virtuous conduct, people welcome them in any assembly. One dies unconfused. And at the breakup of the body, one reappears in a happy destiny. So that last one, it's up to you whether you... I'm not trying to convince anyone (laughs) of that. But uh, some people believe in rebirth and some people don't. But the happy destiny can be the next moment or the next time you have a sitting and you feel like, wow, I feel happy that I, I could have this kind of renunciation or this kind of way of acting in the world instead of harmful. It's with the harmony. So Mahasi Seydao again, trying to bring you some understanding from that uh, translated book of his Manual of Insight, it's called. He says, so you should protect your morality with great care, just as you would protect your very life. You should not be negligent about your behavior, thinking that you can correct it later. You might die at any time. Morality is especially important for those who are practicing meditation. They should even honor and respect it more than their lives and keep it fully purified. If you purposely and properly purify morality, then you will have a clear conscience every time you reflect about morality during your meditation practice. You will experience joy and delight, tranquility, happiness, and peace by observing the physical and mental processes every time they arise. You will see things as they really are and gain further knowledge. So he's ending with this sentence about meditation. 
So the Buddha said, this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, something to depend upon, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, one risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So these are important admonitions to take seriously in our lives if we really want to deepen our meditation practice. So let's sit for just a few moments and let the words dissolve. May we all gain a devotion to our practice of virtuous living for the sake of harmony with others and for the sake of our own integrity, respect for ourselves. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma this evening.